Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. So today we are talking about Matthew 21 verses 23 through 32. And as I read this, uh, set of passages today, I was um, particularly curious how this passage fits within the context of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Well, I think this whole section of Matthew's gospel, um, there's there's quite a lot of the tension between Matthew's Jewish Christian community and the synagogue reflected here and the, and the Jewish religious leaders. So um, the way Matthew frames this whole section of the gospel, there's a lot of edgy stuff here. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people read that through modern eyes and see it as uh, anti-Semitism. But as I've said before, that's kind of a non sequitur or an oxymoron because we're talking about Jewish people who were being attacked by other Jewish people and they were defending themselves. So the the Matthew's Jewish Christian community was essentially trying to, they were fighting for their legitimacy uh, because they had been ostracized from the synagogue and, and, you know, basically thrown out of their families. So... I think that, yeah, interesting. And when I've been looking at some of the comments, I think there's just an assumption by people later on that there's Gentiles and Jews and even assumptions that that the correct ones in Matthew's, um, in Matthew's church that he's referring to are Gentiles. But we established that pretty clearly last time, that these people are probably a mixed bag. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think all the church settings in the New Testament are, uh, have a mixed mixture of Jewish and Gentile elements, but it seems that that Matthew's community that he's addressing is predominantly Jewish Christian, and probably either in the midst of being, ex, you know, tossed out of the synagogue and out of their families, or having just recently experienced that because the 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 edge is still pretty raw for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the things questions I I had on top of this was so Jesus is coming in, and of course this the first if. It, They help us out in a text. The authority of Jesus questioned. And I guess I wanted to ask about Jesus's authority. How how does he have authority within the community? Well, again, as I said before, I think the issue of authority is a very important one in Matthew's gospel. Um, Jesus, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has the authority to cast out demons. Jesus teaches with authority. It's interesting. In the Sermon on the Mount, he will quote the Ten Commandments, and say, you've heard it said, but then he'll just say, but I say to you. That was unprecedented, that no other Jewish teacher would have taught that way. Um, Jesus, so he teaches with authority. He has the authority to forgive sins, <laughs> which he makes clear by the healing of the paralytic. 
And in the end, he appears and says that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. So this is a very um, important theme, and, and I think part of what Matthew's gospel is trying to convey is that Jesus has this authority from God. And, and so in the context, you know, you've got, you've got chief priests and elders of the people coming to Jesus and saying, you know, by what authority do you do this? And I think in Matthew's gospel, a reader of Matthew's gospel would read that and say, well, it's obvious it's from God. <laughs> right, right. I think, I think that exactly that when you are a reader, it's Matthew has established that for us. Mm-hmm. And yet I do think it's really interesting when you think about putting yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees and, and wondering, well, why he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't who we expected. He's, he's not operating. We expected he's breaking all the rules. Mm-hmm. How can this be so in of authority? And, and yet, you know, he was breaking, he, as he would say, he was breaking their rules, you know, your traditions. Right. Uh, in, in Matthew, there's a, there's a passage where he says, you know, you, you, they, they come to him and say, why do you not observe the traditions? And he says, why do you use your traditions to violate God's law? Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> so. so this Paul, and, you know, I think about, I think, I think we're not to today's questions yet, but I keep thinking of authority today and how it's established. And I, I think this is, I mean, I think this is really intentional on, on Matthew's, um, construction of this and we know it's a very carefully constructed gospel um to reach into those with this deep jewish background and yet to show how jesus is definitely the authority within Mm -hmm. it definitely the vision that god well and and we have we have to remember that in 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 it's in matthew's gospel that jesus says don't think that i came to abolish the law and the prophets i came to fulfill them Mm -hmm. and he emphasizes that in other ways you know the golden rule this is the law and the prophets. So he's very much aligned. Jesus in the Matthew, in Matthew's gospel is very much aligned with with the law and the prophets. Um, and the debate between Jesus and the Pharisees is over um, how how deeply do you really follow the law? <laughs> you know, Jesus wants it to be from the heart, and uh, like any other human religious establishment, you know. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had their sort of uh, traditions about how they thought they were fulfilling the law, but it was more external than internal. Right, right, yeah. Huge. Those are those are huge questions, right? Of of um, what is the intent of the law, um, and how the law crafts that, or again, what is that? What is that? Maybe superficial meaning of the law, and how often do we as human beings, and I think this is partly what he's getting under, start to go with with practices that, that somehow move outside the actual intent of the law. So sure. as, as, as Jesus well, and, comes in. And, you know, the, the irony is Jesus has his most intense controversy with the Pharisees because they were probably, they, they were probably most closely aligned. Yeah. I read that. Um, yes. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, you have to give the Pharisees credit for the fact that, you know, they, the, the language they use is they were building a fence around the law with their traditions. <clears throat> So when, when they talked about how far you could travel on the Sabbath, they were trying to make sure that they didn't transgress the actual commandment. So they sort of built a fence around the law so that they, if they didn't break the fence, they wouldn't break the commandment. And, and that was, a, I mean, that was a, a noble intention, but unfortunately they got the emphasis on the wrong syllable mm-hmm. because it became all about the fence <laughs> and not about the, 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 the Torah of God, you know? <laughs> 
and Jesus Jesus throws that up at them. I'm laughing. We 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 all know this. <laughs> yeah, right. So this this idea of authority brings me to the second part of our text, which is the parable of the two sons. And I love this parable, but when you come at it, at least from maybe my background of tradition, I knew exactly how to read it. I I knew that the one who said no, but then came back and, and did the right thing was, was the way to understand this parable. Is that fair? Is that good? Should I uh, do that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's what, the, what we're meant to do. Um, um, you know, um, in this context, Jesus is telling the parable sort of in the face of the religious leaders. They question his authority, you know, again, in Matthew's context, missing the obvious, what, what I think Matthew would, would want us to say, want us to understand that they were missing the obvious. And so Jesus is just kind of throwing it back at him and saying, you know, look, um, and, and, you know, even when they, when, when he says, I'll answer your question if you answer me a question, you know, you see their subterfuge in, in, well, if we say this, then he'll have us there. And if we say that he'll have us there. So we're not going to really answer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they, they're, they're putting him on the spot, mm-hmm. but they're not willing to, to answer a, a straightforward question either. And so, um, um, the parable of the two sons, I think just kind of brings it to a point. Look, um, the one son said he would said he wouldn't do it, but he did. The other son said he would do what the father asked, and he didn't. Which one did the father's will? And this, this too, is a theme in Matthew's gospel about um, it's not those who say how much right. they, they love God or obey God or how much they revere the Torah with their words. It's those who put it to practice from the heart. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so in this context, he even... It's, it's interesting because it seems obvious to us what the point is, but Jesus still feels the need to drive it home. He says, you know, um, John came with this baptism of repentance and the prostitutes and the tax collectors heard him and believed. Um, but even when you saw that, you didn't believe. And, mm-hmm. and so he's, he's really, really castigating them. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's interesting that although the point of this whole passage is uh, Jesus' authority, that's where we start right, out. Right, right. That's true. Right. Um, the debate is about John's baptism because that's what Jesus asked: was John's baptism from God or was it from men? And and so it's interesting that they're having this debate about Jesus' authority by talking about John. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, and I think this true is Jesus' authority, especially as he's talking to the Pharisees. You know, and when I thought. What if I were a Pharisee and I heard this? I mean, because it's so obvious to us, and yet if you were thinking about, what if I, I can't, I can't say no in front of my father? Wouldn't that be a greater sin than doing? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that's an interesting play mm-hmm. on really how maybe how important that would have been in their minds as well. This idea that. I wouldn't tell my dad no in front of his face. That's a sin too. I mean, when you read, and we mm-hmm. get at that a little bit, but it seems obvious how to weigh it. Uh, but I'm not sure. I think the hearers might have heard this uh, much more in, as a big question. I'm I would say sure. the religious leaders may not have even been able to hear what Jesus had to say about him. Some of them did, obviously, mm-hmm. because the Gospels record that you know some of the some of the Jewish leaders did respond. 
but uh, the 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 majority of them, I don't think, even had the ability to be even to to even consider that they might not be doing God's will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think it's interesting. Uh, I'd like to I'd like it if you'd be willing to put this then into if any broader context of what Mike comes next. I mean, I think it's interesting. He's got um, the the cursing of the fig tree, the authority of Jesus, the parable of two sons. I mean, is this all part of a bigger, I felt like it was kind of an awkward pull for the revised common dictionary. Is it part of a bigger, bigger piece? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you study the gospels, especially Matthew and Luke in parallel, it's interesting where Matthew puts some things and Luke puts other things. So, for example, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in, in Matthew's Gospel, and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel is only one chapter. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of the stuff that Matthew has in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke puts in sort of in various places on the journey to Jerusalem. You have this long journey narrative in, in Luke's Gospel where, where a lot of the teaching material that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel uh, is placed in Luke's gospel, so it's hard to it's hard to say about that. I think um, I think uh, for me the 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 issue is more how it ties into the themes of Matthew's gospel, mm-hmm. uh, themes like authority, themes like saying and doing. Mm-hmm. Now I will say this: one of the one of the I think one of the things that that a modern hearer might find strange is Jesus speaking about tax collectors and prostitutes in an almost disparaging way. And this isn't the only place he does this in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses the tax collectors and or other identified sinners or stereotypical mm-hmm. sinners, um, sort of throws it back at, at the Jewish religious establishment mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our ears, it probably sounds a bit harsh, I think, but again, I think, you know, what Jesus is trying to say is even the most despised sinners right. in your eyes responded to what God is doing in your midst, and you refused. Right. And so this just magnifies the fact that they were so obstinate and so just stubborn in refusing what God was doing uh, in their midst. I had noted on there that these these particular sinners not only they despised but these are sinners that are that are victims of systems you know in a lot of ways Um, these aren't these aren't so much murderers and rapists these are these are people that have become in these positions uh, for survival right Right. like tax collector have to make money to survive a prostitute again Mm -hmm. survival instinct so Mm -hmm. i thought that was interesting i'm not sure if there's a point about that but um well uh, i think i think i think the issue has to do with whenever you stereotype anybody in in that role of you know the epitome of center i think that's a problem yeah yeah any other thoughts that you want to share with us no i think that's all right okay well we're back and i'm gonna uh, take turns asking Christy some questions about uh, the Ref- the Reformation. Um, one of the things we talked about was about how um, this passage has been perceived as being anti-Semitic, and I'm wondering to what extent that perception is based on some reality in the church, and particularly 
you know, what was what, what was the anti-Semitic polemic in the Reformation era like? Sure. Um, and I think it's interesting because we can have to go back to anti-Semitism really to the beginning of the church and this pattern that comes out really through the church fathers and then continues its way into the medieval church. Um, by the time you get to the Reformation, you have an interesting time on your hands because Frankly, the, the Jews have been kicked out of most of Europe, only in the free cities in the Holy Roman Empire. So Luther would have had more interaction potentially with Jews than, say, Calvin. There theoretically were no Jews, practicing Jews, in, mm. in France. So their knowledge of Judaism is very slanted based on what has come down to them. Uh, and so this is kind of an interesting place on, on text because there's a tradition of reading text with this anti-Semitic bent, and yet... Mm. I would argue this wasn't the primary goal of either Calvin or Luther, which might have been assumed by those creating later anti-Semitic um, arguments when we hit the, the really the 19th, late 18th and 19th century, I mean, post-Enlightenment, when we start to really start attacking um, Jews again. So this is kind of a, it, it, I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. Mm. So, so what I hear you saying is that they they basically um, you have some anti-Semitic tendencies in in Luther and Calvin, but it seems more like they were simply um, um, taking from the tradition that they inherited and just just continuing that. Right, and Luther and Calvin are different in their take on um, anti-Semitism. For Luther, Luther actually had this kind of belief early on that. Anyone who would have access to scripture and could read it in their own language would then necessarily be able to uh, respond to it through the Holy Spirit in the correct way. So that was part of the push for his, that people needed to read the Bible and we need to put this into the vernacular languages. What is really, really funny about this whole thing though is they didn't interpret it the way he thought they would, the obviousness of it. So for him, initially, his take on the Jews are they just need the scripture in their hands the right way and with the Holy Spirit, and they'll become Christians. Well, that didn't happen. Um, and so what you see is his increased kind of anti-Jewish um, polemic increase as he, as he ages. He, gets, he begins to believe that their reading of scripture by not seeing it through Christian eyes is just simply an abomination. So he starts to push Jews into the same categories as Turks and Roman Catholics and the Schwermer, my favorite. Um, so that's where Luther comes in. The Schwermer were the enthusiasts, right? The, <laughs> the ones enthusiasts, who, the Anabaptists, yeah. um, the, the people that the spiritualists. All these, all the, a whole variety of of what we might say non confessional. In um, his Christians. mind, those who went off the deep end. Those who went off the deep end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm. But for Calvin, I should probably put Calvin back into here. For Calvin, it's a little bit different. Um, but again, uh, we believe that he probably only met one or two Jews in his entire life. Wow. Yeah. Um, work on, based on some of the work of David Steinmetz at, at Duke, uh, who passed recently. But um, Calvin's take on, on them was that they were part of a remnant and that, that God had protected that remnant and that there was still some kind of some hope for for these Jews. And also, I think it reflects his understanding of Scripture, which he was very much a, a, a Two Testament guy, um, where he would understood this kind of um, overarching 
development of scripture from the old to the new, this providential reading. Um, well, you had Luther also seeing two scriptures. Everything in Luther was kind of a medieval take, and we're going to interpret everything in the Old Testament as being Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Calvin was more hesitant to do that. Yeah. He really looked for how it, how, how Christian readers might have understood things or how it, how it might have hinted at things to come, but not with specifically Christianized, not trying to Christianize the whole Well, that's, that's, that's still characteristic today of, of the Reformed tradition is that we, we are much more people of the whole Bible and we see, see the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament as uh, being part of a whole and, and the New Testament is flowing out of the, New, the Old Testament and um, whereas, you know, in, in a lot of, in, I wouldn't say all Lutheran circles, but Luther's tradition certainly you can see as, as pitting the law versus the gospel against one another. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I, I think that's really cool about Calvin. We see some of the, those roots of our tradition right mm-hmm. there. Uh, what is, I don't want to, I don't want to, Overplay him though as this great friend to the Jews. He was still a product of, to- of his time, and he still felt that they um, obstinately didn't believe. And he still, while there was this hope they might get on, he still had this idea of the elect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was definitely a lot of Jews that were likely not part of that elect. Now, in saying that, you didn't know who the elect were, and there certainly was attempt of you know all should be. Uh, this should be slapped in someone's face for not believing. Um, but that definitely was part of it. It's mm. not like he was this, mm-hmm. this, this one person out on a, on a limb. But I do think his interpretation provides for opportunities to grow later in terms of kind of, um, kind of a, a, a more ecumenical kind of faith. Well, when you were talking about his his view of of holding out hope for the Jews, it reminded me of Paul in Romans nine through eleven. You know, because that's that's the sort of the take that Paul articulates there. Exactly, and of course, it, that is one of the texts that is often pulled out with with Calvin. Um, this text, in particular, is not generally used by as as one of their anti Jewish texts by the reformers. I did not find that um, it. it I'm sure that it was read that way, but that wasn't seemingly its primary, their primary sights on it. And again, I think that reflects of, you know, when you look at all the things Luther wrote, all the things Calvin wrote, the things against the Jews are, it's kind of like taking a handful of ideas that are on the outskirts of what their, what their real, real goal is. And their real enemies were those in front of them, the Roman Catholic Church, as they saw it. Um, even mm-hmm. the Turks, which had come in and, and were invading, um, 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 in invading the Holy Roman Empire, that was even more of a threat from the Ottoman Empire. So, so their threats were from Catholicism and Islam. Yes, really. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Right, more than the Jews, which were already a, a small minority and yeah. which were already, mm. um, most of them that were living um, in even in the Holy Roman Empire, in the free cities, were still living in kind of ghetto-like areas where, mm-hmm. where they were isolated. Um, and there was interaction but it was not. It wasn't like. It wasn't like living with the guy next door was Jewish and. Sure. Sure. So, um, if Calvin doesn't use this in an anti-Semitic way, how does he use this passage? 
Well, interesting, um, in Calvin's commentaries, he does a full commentary on it, which is really interesting, but he talks about how um, it really f- does not focus on the things that we saw as being important, but rather on um, the idea of baptism um, and, and that the authority of God. He uses it very much to support his idea of, um, of, the, uh, um, of the sovereignty of God and um, emphasizes this idea of baptism um, being, again, coming from God, that John's baptism is of God. Those who are baptized then also come from God, and, and it makes a big emphasis on, on that God's authority is what should control the church and not the Roman Catholic authority. So what a strange shift. It sounds to me like, you know, he, Calvin is almost appropriating the authority that Jesus was talking about to his own view about baptism in his, in his you know, struggle against the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think yes and no. I don't think he would necessarily see it that way. Of course he would. Um, you know, because Calvin is a second generation reformer. A lot of people forget that he's a generation younger than Martin Luther. Uh, and so he has been trained to think and formulate things with this kind of new humanism, the ideas of, of Luther coming in in a very modern, if you will, modern way. So this is on his mind. He's 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 basically grown up in the polemic anti Roman Catholic polemic. So when he he comes to the scripture, he that's what he sees. Um, and I'm going to read it to you. I just think this is so interesting. Um, and this is his response. Um, now mind the the Calvin language here. For hence we infer that no doctrine and no sacrament ought to be received among the godly unless it be evident that it has come from God and that men are not at liberty to make any invention to this nature. And of course, he's referring very specifically to the five additional sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church identifies um, as opposed to... So it's ironic, you know, because in in our previous discussion, we were talking about how... um, the real question was about Jesus' authority, and they only, you know, it only shifted to John's baptism as a kind of means of discussing Jesus' authority, and Calvin focuses more on the question of John's baptism as the focus of this text mm-hmm. in order to, um, prom- I guess, to advance his argument against the Catholic sacraments. Right. Right. I get it. I mean, yeah, I know Calvin wouldn't want to say this. He wouldn't like this, but it sounds to me like he's appropriating the authority that Jesus <laughs> is, is, that Matthew is trying to say belongs to Jesus. Right. <laughs> I, I think I think so. I think one of the problems here, and I'm I'm surprised because Calvin does not always do this, but he really takes this and div- each talks about each individual um, individual passage, individual verse, mm. and sometimes I think when that happens, he he sometimes comes away without looking at this as a whole, and in particular as a whole within its context of um, what we talked about today, the authority piece, and then the parable coming after it. Um, he's, I think because he's pulling it apart so much in this case that he's kind of missing that broader. Um, well, and ironically, I think, you know, um, th- there are people out there who, who pride themselves on being expositional preachers because they go word by word and verse by verse. But, um, I, you know, I've heard that as basically simply uh, an opportunity for them to get their own agenda in and, again, missing the big picture. Missing because the big picture. when you miss the big picture, it's easy for you to just import your own agenda. I think what's interesting when we think about reformers and why I love them and also I'm frustrated by them is, 
I mean, they fit well into what we call the pre-modern era. There are some things that they do that are very modern. For example, looking for the be best text in the, in the Greek and looking for the ancient text and trying to figure out how they were used and watching things that are added to Scripture that shouldn't be. At least that's part of their idea. But they're not modern. Mm -hmm. They don't do modern exegesis, so they, they, they aren't, don't have the same kind of broad critical um, processes that we have, and they certainly are not always aware um, of even trying to be objective. That's <laughs> certainly right. not part of their language. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, thanks, Christine. <laughs> You're welcome. So we are back, and now we want to just talk about the application of this text. And I think the first place we want to maybe start digging into is this idea of the corrupt systems that are that are in place that may lead us to read this in a certain way, understand it a certain way. You know, when you when you when you mention that, I inevitably think of of um, I can't remember, is it Reinhold Niebuhr or Richard Niebuhr? The one who I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr who said that all human institutions are inherently corrupt, inherently fallen, inherently broken, and uh, that's true for religious institutions as well. You know, we it's it's easy to beat up on the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day and to see them as such bad guys. You know, because that's how they come. That's how they're sort of portrayed in the in the Gospels. Again, I want to say, you know. The Gospels were written from the perspective of people who were fighting for their legitimacy against an, an overwhelming majority that was that was suppressing them and oppressing them. So um, I think we have to understand that. But, you know, it's easy for us to see the corruption in somebody else, I think. It's easy for us to see, you know, the speck in someone else's eye and miss the log in our own. I think, which is why when we read this, we can easily point fingers at these Pharisees as being as being right. the bad guys. And I, I have to digress. I remember a song growing up. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee because <laughs> a Pharisee ain't fair. You see, I don't want to be a Pharisee. So I've never heard that song. That's incredible. Oh my! But even that, how that played into. Uh, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> this idea of being anti anti pharisaic yeah. yeah. Well, and, <laughs> you, know, it, you know, like I said, it's easy for us to pick on the Pharisees because they get so criticized in the Gospels. But the truth is, we all have our own versions of Phariseeism. Whether we're on the right of the spectrum or on the left of the spectrum or in the middle of the spectrum, we can judge with the best of them. And 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 you know, that was one of the main things that Jesus, I think, criticized the Pharisees for was you know. They saw themselves as the, you know, epitome of self of righteousness, the epitome of righteousness, and yet, you know, and, and they looked down on others who who didn't rise to that level of righteousness, and you know that in and of itself was was flawed. You know, I mean, I think I think God created us all to be um, a part of the human family. And uh, no one has precedence over anybody in that. And no one gets to say, well, I'm holier than thou. You know, it's we all have our feet of clay. Right. And so, yeah, it's hard, I think, for us to recognize. But unfortunately, the most the, the, the worst Pharisees can be those of us who are in the church today. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I, you're reminding me of I think we tend to see right and wrong, black and white. 
And I think this process is very circular and I think it's very hard. I mean, we, we live in our own truth and when it's our own truth, then we have trouble seeing that someone else's, there could be another truth. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we tend to say we are right and you are wrong instead of seeing this as this kind of interesting cyclical sense of that truth is something that is constantly on the move. Sure. So even if I live in this truth in this way, I still have to be accepting of someone else's reality. And this is very hard. And this is partly why I think Jesus's challenge is so incredible. Um, and, and he lived in a way that was, that again, this is part of God's, um, the, the, the triune identity, right? And you have, I, as I see it, and because it's not this simple black and white and evil and good, but it's really much more of a, of a, a bigger cyclical picture of understanding forgiveness and love and hope, which in themselves aren't kind of intangibles. It's it's incredibly hard, I think, for most of us to keep our perspective in that in that broad sense of, of the big picture. Um, uh, you know, it, for many people, if your truth is too different from my truth, then that's a threat to my truth and a threat yeah. to me personally. And, um, you know, that's, I think, uh, something that we all have to have to be aware of. We all fall into that trap. We all fall into that I mean, trap. Absolutely. You know, and, and so we all have people that we consider to be the stereotypical sinners. You know, it may not be yes, the tax collectors yes, and the yes. prostitutes these days, but, um, you know, for a certain segment of society, uh, they might say that the stereotypical sinners are white supremacists. Right. You know exactly. And for other other segments of society, they would say that um, people pushing a liberal agenda are a threat to our way of life. They they're people who believe that. And Absolutely. So, and and those those truths oftentimes have you, you have a hard time reconciling them. But um, I think we have to recognize that first and foremost that we all have a way of stereotyping people as sinners, as, as the enemy, as a threat. And, you know, that's not fair to them. Well, and that's where, you know, Jesus' challenge to love your enemy as yourself yeah. and to find those spaces um, of humanity and, and love for neighbor that are really hard to do. Yeah. And it seems like, now, when we're in such a time of such tension, it's really easy to do finger pointing and hating, yes. and instead of really doing um, our call, the call on our lives. Um, I know, I know for myself. You know, I've tried to point out. You know, do you think Jesus died for Adolf Hitler? Do you think Jesus died for Manuel Noriega? Do you think Jesus died for Saddam Hussein? You know. Uh, and exactly. I, you know, I think where I would be challenged is, does did Jesus die for white supremacists? You know, right. And and does God love white supremacists? And I would have to say, yeah, even though it's hard for me to do. Right, right. <clears throat> the, 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 that he that God loves these very very all of us, this sinful people that we are, mm-hmm. and that's it is hard to wrap your brain around. Um, and, and yet, yeah, somehow, stereo- I think stereotyping people like that is a way of giving ourselves a pass too on our sins. I think you're right. I think you're right. And somehow, if you, if you can bring yourself around to to trying to walk in those shoes of of Jesus, you can 
you can start to see how this world is so different. You can see this world of hope in the middle of it, which is cool. <laughs> it is cool. I mean, that's one of the best things I think about yeah. the gospel is 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 the hope that you know the, the promise of the gospel is that one day the kingdom of God will be fulfilled in all its fullness, and and God's justice and God's mercy and God's peace will prevail over all that is broken in this world today. And that's, that's what keeps me going every day. <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Uh, so um, I think as we, as we talk about this, maybe one question that I have is, you know, when we see that a text like this can be used as a weapon, Calvin used it in his battle against the Catholics. Um, um, throughout history, some church Leaders have used it as a weapon against Jewish people. So how can we um, um, read this text without using it as a weapon against any group? Right. Well, I, you know, one of the things that struck me, and, and since we're talking to pastors here, I think one of the things that, that we need to do as, as, as pastors is to make sure that we don't jump to some of these texts, some of these commentaries from the 18th and 19th century, which are going to pull on to some of this anti-Semitic reading of it. I think it affects how we look at it. And I, so I think that's what we have to do first, is make sure that we're, we're looking at good commentaries for our help. But then the other thing is, is I think it helps to put ourselves into the shoes of these, of these, different, of these different people. Um, one of the one of the best interpretive practices I've heard is to put yourself in the shoes of every character in a gospel narrative mm-hmm. and try to see it from that perspective. Exactly, yeah. and that that makes you a little bit more empathetic towards these Pharisees. As I said, the thing for me has been, if I were a Pharisee and Jesus put this this question at me of, you know, should I should I is it worse to say this and not do it or to um, not do it originally and then go do it. I I would be, I would be conflicted because I should be doing both. <laughs> right. You should. You should. You I should, should say op- I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it. Right. And and for a Pharisee, not to say I I won't do it is very much a sin to his to his father. It may be as great a sin in their mm-hmm. minds mm-hmm. as not doing the action. Um, whereas in our minds today, it's like no, the doing is more, and I think that comes through. But I think when you put yourself in those shoes, you realize these Pharisees were people that were really pr- trying to be righteous people. Right. And um, it reminds me so much, you know, when we look in our own history of many of these these 18th and 19th, probably 19th century missionaries went out trying to do the right thing to spread the faith. Mm-hmm. Many of these were very faithful people. Unfortunately, it so often came with culture and trying to import one culture over another. Yeah, they trampled the cultures that they exactly. worked in. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, so well-meaning, but not understanding the bigger picture. Right. Well, and for me, I think one of the most essential steps is just the foundational step of of doing everything you can to try to put yourself in that world, in that time, to understand what was going on in that setting. Uh, in that day, because, um, you know, trying to understand the historical context, trying to understand the literary context of Matthew's gospel, 
trying to understand the context of Jesus' ministry, trying to understand the context of Matthew's community and who he was addressing. These are all crucial, um, I think, pieces of of the puzzle to kind of inform us as to to get the the whole picture of what's going on. And that helps keep us from from taking a text like this and weaponizing it against someone. Right. You know, and I've heard before, too, anytime that you use the Bible as a weapon, you've got a you've got a problem on your hands. It should never be used that way. And um, that is a tendency, unfortunately, we see in some of the traditions now. Sure. So if you find yourself in those sh- in that space, then you need to rethink how you're interpreting yeah. the, interpreting it. And the yeah. way the way I've heard that from the Presbyterian perspective is, um, I think I actually got this from either Rogers or McKim, one of those two guys. Uh, there was a paper that was written uh, some years ago about Presbyterian interpretation. And uh, the last principle of interpretation was the principle, the rule of love, which was basically that if, if your interpretation of Scripture leads you to do anything other than to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, then you've missed it and you need to go back. And, <laughs> you need to go back. <laughs> do your work again. Yeah, and do your work again. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It comes with a theological lens. And, and, you know, we talked about, we saw a little bit of the lens of Calvin today, you know, yeah. part of the things that impacted him. And so, um, and we all have a lens as we come to it. But, we um, do, and and we're not gonna we're not gonna get rid of that lens, and that's okay. But I think it's I think it's more about awareness. It's about being aware of our lens and being trying doing the best we can to read it through the lens of the people who would have absolutely been there. who had experienced it yeah. initially. I agree. I agree. That gets it at the, the closest meaning of 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 what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think the reality is we're gonna make our mistakes. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, we're we're going to. Our, our personality, our personal experience, our culture, you know, our bias is going right. to come through in our preaching, right. and that's just because we're human. Right. But fortunately, um, we, we, can, we can serve in the confidence that God can use us despite the fact that we're all flawed people. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and, and of course, they, you all haven't heard Alan preach, but Alan always starts with a prayer, which is always a reminder that... You know, we are asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance as we are have understood and read and are, are and are and are telling this to our congregation. And I think if we are writing our sermons in the context of of prayer and understanding that we might make a mistake when we do it, I think we'll be a lot more faithful to the text and to the Christian message. Sure. Well, I've enjoyed it today. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, thank you. That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.